Welcome to the pilot episode of Interronauts, the fortnightly CSIRO podcast where we talk about breaking science news from around the world, Australia, and inside the CSIRO. I'm Jesse Hawley from the CSIRO's social media team, and I'm joined by Sophie Schmidt. Hello, I'm also from CSIRO. And our producer, Adrian Walton. Hello, everyone. I'm here. Not a CSIRO person. I'm going to ask the dumb questions. I'm the dumb guy in the room. Yeah, hey, you're, you're the producer. You're doing all the clever stuff. No. Look at your fingers. You're like a pianist. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you. Not Welcome. Too. It's the, it's the pilot show, inaugural show, and we're on SoundCloud. We've already got two followers. Very exciting. Don't have a show yet. They're enthusiastic. We have great potential to be followed. Today's news, we'll be talking about panda thumbs, Tasmanian tiger brains, orca talk, frisky fairy wrens, and interviewing Dr. Lisa Harvey-Smith, a CSIRO managing astronomer at the ASCAP Radio Telescope. Give me some international science news, Sophie. Cool. Well, I know you guys are hanging out to hear about menopausal whales. Um, menopausal? Wow. Yeah. Uh, there's actually only three mammals in the world that go through menopause. Firstly, humans. Okay. I know, yeah, I know of humans. <laughs> He's catching on quick, this guy. <laughs> humans I know about. Whales, whales I now apparently know about. Killer whales. Yeah. That's and, the whale. Okay. Yeah. Well, a third one is called the short-finned pilot whale, of but course. it's actually a dolphin. Trick question. Uh, aren't killer whales dolphins too? We're hey? all dolphins. Did you say we're, all, we're all dolphins? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're all whales, and that's because whales are just like us. They can live up until 90. They As... can reproduce from the age of 15 to 40. After that, it's menopause time. So they spend more than half their life in menopause. Female, wow. that is. Just imagining a whale teenage pregnancy. <laughs> a documentary about that. Teen whale moms. You're not, you're not joining the pod, you're dropping out. <laughs> well, that's a TV show. <laughs> well, the, that sort of ties in well because uh, scientists are trying to find out why they spend their life, more than half their life, in menopause. And the reason is to avoid competition with their daughters who might also be pregnant at the same time. Um, so just let the daughters, let the next generation have their. That's chance. <laughs> time to shine, time to wow. carve. Um, it's because the the older whales, if they were to have, um, if they were to carve, their kids would have almost twice a chance of dying than younger mums. So they take one for the team, and they take on the role of looking after the pod. So that literally means leading leading the pod. A matriarch. To, yeah, exactly. Um, finding out the sweet fishing spots, catching the breeze. <laughs> no they pick the kids up from school like they <laughs> they look after just do all the grandma duties exactly they they don't mind looking after calves other than their own I believe wow taking them to crappy kids movies yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah kids shut up I loved it uh, so basically whales go through menopause uh, to increase the survival chance of their own genes um, yeah. sharing the resources around how did they found this out um, it was researchers at the University of Exeter in the UK. Um, they've been looking at whale behaviour for some time, okay. I think. Yeah, and that just sort of came up. You'd think I sort of ex- imagine chimps to have menopause because they can live pretty old, like eighty, ninety-two, I think. Yeah, I don't recommend googling random animal <laughs> plus menopause <laughs> in Google Images. It's your recommendation for the day: homework. Yes, so here is some international news from me. Research conducted at the Chinese Academy of Sciences found a genetic basis for similarities between red pandas and giant pandas. So aside from the name, uh, these animals are completely unrelated. Giant pandas are bears. They're panda bears. They got the uh, 
So the, the giant pandas. Sorry, I think you were just about to say it. They're the black and white guys. The classic, the cartoons. Yeah. Mascara. The ones the, I know. The, the mascara. <laughs> yeah. Like they've been weeping. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, red pandas are also found in China and Tibet, and they uh, they're more related to the weasel and mongoose family, so they're not bears. <clears throat> um, I'm not sure why they're both called pandas. I don't know what panda means. Maybe the patches around their eyes. But um, they both have a diet which is 90% bamboo. And what is amazing is um, these animals don't have thumbs. They've got paws. And yet, to hold the bamboo more efficiently and to eat food more efficiently, their wrist has evolved a mutation. It sort of juts out to be almost like a thumb. So it opposes the fingers. So they can cling to bamboo and eat more effectively. So uh, what these researchers found out is they uh, sampled the genome. So Sorry, sorry to interrupt again. Just asking the dumb guy questions. I want to be interrupted. These guys aren't related. Do um, they commingle at all? Not to my imagination. Just different shades of makeup. Deep down, just, yeah, they're right. all just polar bears. They're different gangs. They also live in different parts of the ecosystem. Like They're separated geographically. Yeah, but, right. uh, okay. Red pandas are tree-dwelling. They're quite yep. light animals. And um, I don't think they'd even interrupt, interact with so each other. They're completely independent of each other. They've both evolved with the same... They they share a common ancestor of 49 million years ago. So what that means is they both had the same grandparent and they've been separated and haven't been mixing with each other for that long, which is a long time. You know, it's three-quarters of the way to the dinosaurs going extinct. Convergent evolution? Yeah, convergent evolution. So they both have a diet of bamboo. They've got the insides and the digestive system for carnivore, so they've got adaptations to absorb the bamboo better. So what the researchers found was they sampled the genome of both pandas they had to do it fresh for the red panda. They didn't really have a good copy. And they found out that there have been mutations in the genome of both animals that have resulted in these uh, adaptations of the, the wrist thumb and the digestive system. And yet the mutations are different, as you'd imagine, the giant panda and the red panda, and yet the results are roughly the same. So this is exciting news because it puts a, a genetic foundation to a great biological phenomenon of convergent evolution. And sorry, when did this sort of occur? When did they start noticing the thumbs? Is this something they've always had as far as humans are concerned? Yeah. Do they look like our thumbs? Or has this happened a few weeks back? They don't look like thumbs. They've had the thumbs for a long time. All right. I don't know how long, but millions of years. Uh, same goes with the digestive system. Um, and they don't look like thumbs. They look like a little nub of the wrist that's just able to hook into bamboo. Right. It, it's like a sort of stubby holder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the more sophisticated variety. Um, also, the uh, since both bears don't eat meat, they've lost the taste receptor to get excited by the meat flavor. It's umami, which we all know and love, soy sauce and that. They've lost that, which is a shame. But Giant uh, meat eater over here. That's devastating. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Look at you. <laughs> oh, I guess Sad panda. <laughs> <laughs> Big bottom lip out there. <laughs> Next up, we got some science news from around Australia. Uh, Sophie. Cool. This one's a really nice story to come out um, in PLOS One journal. It was between a UNSW researcher and a US researcher, and they decided to basically crack open a Tasmania tiger brain and do a po- bit of a post-mortem. Hey? Um, they didn't crack it from its head. It was in like a jar or something. It was already in a jar. There's four jars around the world scattered like keys. <laughs> like, oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, one, the two they were looking at, one was at the Australian Museum and another one at the Smithsonian. And they decided to run them through two kinds of imaging techs. One's an MRI and one's a DTI. Um, that's diffusion tensor imaging for those mm, listeners at home. To ask. They were, an MRI is? 
Magnetic resonance, resonance imaging. imaging. Yes, yeah. well done. Great work, Dan. There's something I knew. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the one thing I've known. I was flaunting <laughs> <laughs> your science okay, part. I'll see you later, guys. <laughs> Coming up next week. Come back. <laughs> so they could reconstruct the brain looking at these two brains. You might be aware that Tasmanian tigers no longer exist. These brains were 100 years old. Allegedly. Allegedly. I've seen videos. There's some people that reckon they're still at like the west coast of Tasmania. <laughs> the last Tassie tiger died in 1936. Fun fact. That in Hobart Zoo. There you go. Yeah. Sad tiger. So they reconstructed the brain and what they found out was that unlike what they had thought previously, they were comparing it to a Tassie devil. The Tassie tiger is probably a predator rather than a scavenger. Mm-hmm. Um, they found that out by looking at the white matter in the brain, which is kind of like the connective tissue to the grey matter, and it's finding the links between the different regions of the brain. And by looking at the size of those regions, they found out that the tiger had um, more sort of finely attuned decision-making centres, which is more in line with a predator rather okay. than a scavenger. They're going to go and, yeah, hunt. Yeah, where to hunt, need to plan that meal. Yeah. It's not going to just come to me. I'm going to be hungry in an hour. I better go and look for something. Exactly. It's really tough um, hunting too because the animal that you're hunting really keenly wants to survive. So you have to have like the (laughs) empathy and the behavioral predictive power to sort of calculate where it's going to run. And animals have like an inherent thing to run erratically and be random. So you have to be able to calculate that as you're running. And I can't run, let alone calculate at the same time. Yeah. That's this, some uh, like that brain time training. You told me you were chased by dogs. My calculation abilities uh, fell apart. The cool thing I think to come out of the study though was that previously they had they hadn't realised that you could actually study a one hundred year old brain and it would be just as fresh as it were yesterday. That'll surely lead to other things too. Surely other scientists around the world will now realise that, as you say, you can scan a hundred year old brain that's sitting in a jar of vinegar and didn't they uh, chop up Einstein's brain and try and compare it to figure out. Well, he was smart. Yeah, I think so. What's up next? Paper published in Biology Letters showed that male wrens that differ in their attractiveness differ in their strategies when females are scarce. So um, these are red-backed fairy wrens. They're a tiny little bird, adorable. They sing and uh, prance around for their potential mates. The males have this beautiful red on their back. And earlier in the study, they uh, they exposed females to... Red back. <laughs> <laughs> It's very accusational. It's very dangerous. Red right back, red. Right, You're talking flying spiders. <laughs> no one's going to listen to us now. Flying spiders. No, no, no. They're birds. They're wrens. Okay. They're fairy wrens. Right. Listen to how d- delightful they sound. A fairy wren. Yeah. With they were red singing back. and dancing. Or singing or dancing red back. <laughs> um, yeah, so they showed different pictures of uh, male fairy wrens to the females to find out which ones they were most attracted to. And the female fairy wrens were... Like that hot or not website. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> swipe, swipe. <laughs> and uh, the ladies liked the guys with the, the vibrant red colour, the vibrant red back. And um, uh, once they make couples, they often, the males will fly off and pair with other females in the nighttime and leave their partners with extra pair copulations. This is vibrant red. Oh, every... Man. The, the birds do it commonly. Uh, other species of fairy wren, it's like a common strategy. You lock down the partner and then you fly around in the nighttime trying to secure potential other mates. Wait, what now? Uh, <laughs> not me personally. You've got to have it all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so they found with the, the red-backed wrens, the, um, the attractive males, the ones with the vibrant colours, are more likely to go out and seek these extra pair copulations and pairings. 
The males who aren't so attractive, the drab ones, they're more brown, they don't really have the red, they know to stay at home with the female wren and guard her against potential suitors that show up in the middle of the night. Man, Not imagine that. Oh, my God. Life stuff and already. Milady just here to make you feel comfortable. <laughs> he comes with the like, roses, musicians. And his bright red back. A big band, yeah. Spent the day in the sun. Get the hell out of here! We're trying to sleep. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so that's what they do. the The dread males stick around and they defend uh, physically. They literally block the female from um, these other guys intruding. Other other wren. Don't know if the guys can climb up the trees. And um, this is a good strategy for them. The younger males that don't quite know where they're up to in the uh, the sexy hierarchy, they flit between both options. They um, will go and seduce other women and other wrens and then they'll come back and will also block the female that they've already associated with. They're not quite sure where they're at. But uh, looking at the success of all strategies altogether, they found that they're roughly equal. So, so how do wow. the how do the less attractive wrens know where they sit on the scale? Because it's easy to think you're a three. Mirrors. Mirrors. <laughs> In that mirrors, tiny wren yeah. mirrors. <laughs> they take selfies and no one likes it. They got a lot, a lot less likes on their uh, Instagram posts. <laughs> After completing construction in 2012, the ASCAP radio telescope in Western Australia was the fastest in the world. After years of calibration and testing, it has begun operations in recent months. To find out about some of its upcoming telescopic escapades, I spoke with one of the managing astronomers, Dr. Lisa Harvey-Smith from the CSIRO. Hi Lisa, thanks for joining me on Interronauts. Hey Jesse, great to be here. So um, the ASCAP telescope, Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder, has just begun making its first observations and everyone is quite excited. My first question is, what's unique about ASCAP? Well, ASCAP is really unique because we, uh, CSIRO, has invented a brand new type of camera for the telescope. So normally a a radio telescope, it um, kind of gathers up in a big dish all the radio waves that come from space and we try and decode those to understand what's going on up there. Um, Now, a normal radio telescope can just see a small part of the sky, but we've developed new cameras so that you can see a massive region of the sky all at once. You can do much quicker surveys of the whole sky to try and understand what the universe is up to. Hmm. And is the telescope a a single one or is it like a, a multitude? How does it work? Well, instead of parks, like a giant single dish, which is really good at very sensitive observations of very distant objects, what we've done is we've built 36 smaller dishes and they join together in a big team and they pull together to form a much um, more detailed image. So because the telescopes are spaced out, um, <laughs> that was a great pun, um, across that. six kilometres of the um, Western Australian outback, um, they actually get a really good zoomed in picture so we can understand the structure and the kind of small scale details of what we're seeing. Hmm. What are some of the uh, the technical specs that set ASCAP apart? Well, we're, we're focusing really on studying uh, radio waves around one gigahertz, which is a piece of the spectrum that helps us to see gas, and gas is what makes up stars. So we're really studying in the more local universe um, how stars are built and how galaxies are built out of this hydrogen gas. We're also studying very distant galaxies and understanding what the universe was like many billions of years ago. Uh, we're looking at radio flashes, and we're also um, looking at the sites of gravitational wave events. So when LIGO sees a gravitational wave, it pings to us, and we go and have a look, see if we can see radio waves, try and find out what these things are. So um, we're doing a whole heap of different science. There's a smorgasbord of science going on with ASCAP, and uh, the technology is really helping to make that happen. Yeah, so um, 
Is there yeah. more unique processing power that comes out of ASCAP that's not otherwise possible with other scopes? Or? ASCAP's creating loads and loads of data, and the reason for that is because there are 36 telescopes. Each telescope has 190 odd um, different sensors on it, so all of that combined together uh, creates about 72 trillion bits of data per oh, man. oh man. The computer, so it's it's the computer brain that makes the pictures, because uh, of course it's it's looking at radio waves. We can't see those with our eyes, so we have to use a computer to make pictures. And uh, the data rate is so vast that you know it's really going to smash the 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 rate of the internet, the global internet. So you know we are using supercomputers in Perth at the Pawsey Center, and we're making uh, unprecedented amounts of data right now. Hmm. You mentioned before you're looking at hydrogen gas in the universe. How does that help describe or tell the story of our universe? Well, our universe is made up of stars, planets, um, but also a lot of gas. And and most of the universe is made made of hydrogen, actually. Hydrogen is the simplest element. So, So hydrogen kind of is a proxy. It tells us the story of the gas in the universe. And the gas pulls together by gravitational attraction to form stars. So this is where we come from. We come from these giant clouds that are floating around in space, which create stars and create planets. And then um, that's really telling us the story of where we come from. Mm, well, hydrogen, huh? Mm, uh, Sophie and I were wondering, now that the processing speed is near instantaneous, what are you guys going to do with all the spare time on your hands? Oh, yeah, we're just twiddling our thumbs now. We've got nothing to do. <laughs> incredible that you know the more you see the more you you try and find and, and we're sifting through the data in many different types of ways so we're looking for fast flashes of light from the sky we're looking at um, things we already know that they're there but we're studying them in more detail and we're discovering new stuff so you know it's just an amazing telescope it's so exciting so it's up and running now it's carrying out observations it's um it's going Well, we've got 36 um, antennas, we've got 30 of them fitted with cameras, the rest are just being done now. Um, And we have uh, an array of 12 of the telescopes that have been fully sort of tested and tuned up that we're currently using to do um, a program of early science. So we're just using 12 of the antennas at the moment, but shortly we'll be boosting that right up to 30 and 36. And then the international science community will be using the telescopes full time. Wow, excellent. what were you most excited for about ASCAP's research future? Is there a particular question that you'd like to see answered? Well, recently, as we've seen, um, the LIGO um, interferometer in the U.S. has discovered gravitational waves, and also different telescopes across the world have, have discovered a lot of things that flash on and off in the night. And we don't know what these things are, powerful interstellar explosions uh, called fast radio bursts. And we're trying to really pick up these objects and because it's a really rich field of discovery. People don't know what these objects are yet. They're very powerful and very energetic, and we think they might be something to do with colliding stars or colliding black holes. So really physics that we can learn a lot about, new physics, new science, and that's what we're trying to focus on. Not death stars. Uh, not death stars. Well, they might be. <laughs> Fingers crossed. That was a long, long time ago, though. That's a wonderful thing. We just don't know what they are. Yeah, so it's going to be an exciting year. Yeah. Wow, very exciting. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jesse. Um, yeah, that project's called the Wallaby Project, and they affectionately call all the scientists working there from CSIRO and outside uh, Wallabies. So that's kind that's of nice. Incredible yeah. stuff. The what Wallabies downstairs at the moment? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> pouch, pouch-bearing one.
licking its paws. Next up, the other projects they have are the Possum, Dingo, and Emu Project. Emu Project's not strolling around the park saddling kids. This is incredible. I was wondering what would happen if they got an alarm that something happened in the middle of the night. Do they just hurry out in their pajamas? I suppose it's done in shit. Well, they'd be right? living like a fire alarm out there, wouldn't they? In, in the telescope, like, like oh, ants. <laughs> it's big, but not residential that big. buildings. Yeah, I don't. It's in the it's middle, in the of, the middle of Western Australia. Yeah, yeah, Murchison. Plenty of space. But surely <laughs> there'd also be some some sort of dwellings for the scientists to live in. Yeah, presumably. Yeah, presumably. <laughs> I read an article about another like, researcher yeah. there. They said it's like a, a bread-making machine where you set it on to make bread, go to bread, <laughs> go to <What>? bread, and uh, <laughs> wake up in the early morning like a baker, and it's all been processed by the supercomputer, and you can just go through the data and find out um, some significances. Well, I worked in a bakery, and that's not how they work. <laughs> <laughs> I can guarantee that. No, no yeast in the scope. Just, no, it's not just turn it on. I'm sorry to insult you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I never... <laughs> Uh, yeah, next program is um, the Evolutionary Map of the Universe, the EMU Project, and we can't wait for that. Just a casual map of the universe. Next up, we have more news from around the CSIRO. The RV investigator has set off to Antarctica, and we have a new app to look at mouse outbreaks. Sophie, tell us about the RV investigator. Um, it's been a week since our team alongside researchers from Italy, Spain and the US, roughly 20 researchers alongside the crew. They set sail for Antarctica, more specifically the Todden Glacier. They're there for two months and you might be like me in wondering where exactly the Todden Glacier is. Please exists. tell me. Well, look, I like it, the name. I went looking and it's not on Google Maps. <laughs> <laughs> Street view. <laughs> the old Yaris hasn't been down there with the 360 cameras. <laughs> having a look around. Hey, I have a Yaris. Penguins. Hey, I'm not knocking Yaris. <laughs> I'm just saying, that's what the Google Maps. The rule of Yaris. <laughs> Yarai. Yarai. Yarai Antarctica. It's in East Antarctica. Uh, Antarctica has <laughs> more than... Dodgy part of the sub. Well, Antarctica as a whole has more than 300 reviews on Google Maps. What? Oh, wow. Yeah. I guess people do, they do do holidays of sorts. Do penguins have access to smartphones? (laughs) (laughs) It's mostly, it's chilly, but nice. It's not chilly, it's Antarctica. (laughs) (laughs) Take that one with you. You so happy with it. So it's in East Antarctica. It's a region that's relatively underexplored. Um, Wow. The Totten Glacier is roughly the size of California. Um, Oh, oh, huge. Yeah, massive. Well, at this stage it is. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is shrinking. The ice is thinning. And scientists think that it, if it continues to do so at this rate, mm-hmm. um, it could contribute to global sea level rise by over 3.5 metres. Sorry, up to 3.5 metres. Sheesh. I guess if you dropped California in the ocean. It'd make a difference, wouldn't it? It would. A plunk, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that, I'd love to go down there. I would absolutely love it. First of all, I love cold weather. Mm. So I just do you like I mean, really cold weather? It, it's a next level cold weather, isn't it? Yeah, negative forty, is it? That's crazy. Yeah, it's got to be. I'd love to experience it for a, an I hour. Mean, Wait for the virtual reality goggles for Antarctica. <laughs> They're coming. No, but then you don't get the full immersion in it. They can, you know, work something out for you. Flow some fans in me. your head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We can do that after the show. So, how long does it take? To, they've set off from. Yeah, it only takes about a week to get to Antarctica. Antarctica Where have they set off from, from Hobart? From Hobart. Where yeah. the Marine National Facility is. That's wow. part of CSIRO. 
Um, they're there to basically map out the offshore region from the glacier. It's called the Sabrina Seafloor, and they're using a range of imaging technology to do that. They're also collecting some sediment samples from the glacier left behind by the retreating ice sheet. Wow. Um, they're collecting sediment from the seafloor to understand how the glacier reacted in the past to um, climate changes, and that that's going to help them understand future changes coming up. How long um, will they be down there for? So it's a 51-day voyage. Um, they're one week in. Uh, hopefully we'll hear from them in our next episode. But meanwhile, you can follow the ship updates on our CSIRO Twitter account. It's hashtag RVinvestigator. Yeah, we might get the chance to speak to someone live on board next time. I would adore that. Me too. Let's sort it out. How cold are you? <laughs> hey, it's really cold, yeah. huh? we imagine. Everybody We've got the aircon on. <laughs> What's penguin taste like? (laughs) (laughs) The uh, next piece of CSIRO news. um, Researcher Steve Henry predicts a massive mouse outbreak in northwest Victoria and the Adelaide Plains. Predicted. They've started. (laughs) Is it happening or not? I need to know. (laughs) They started (laughs) erupting in Victoria. (laughs) 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 From the the mouse magma. Um, so we can calculate this based on the, the wetness of spring. So, uh, we had a very wet spring. It was a bumpy year for crop yields, lots of seeds, lots of crop. The mouse proliferation rate is dependent on how much food they can get into the Mm -hmm. system. By autumn, the, uh, mouse numbers are expected to be in plague populations, proportions. I don't know what defines a plague. Biblical. Is that just a collective noun for a mouse tribe? What is the collective mouse noun? Plague of mice. I reckon plague. Almost plague. Plague would get my. We'll look it up, listeners. We'll we'll (laughs) post it online. Unfortunately, autumn is also the time when farmers sow their seeds for next season. Yeah. And mice will actually dig up the seeds that have been sown. So not only will they they eat the the yield, they actually eat into next season's yield as they go. It's difficult to imagine how mice can be such a problem, but one couple of mice over a single season of love from uh, summer to spring, can make 500 children. Hey! A single mouse. <laughs> a single couple. A pair. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like a virgin Mary. <laughs> there was some oh, sexual reproduction you... with sharks this week, so I wasn't sure what to think. That is true, that is true. But no, uh, a couple of 500. mice. 500. 500, so they only take three weeks in gestation. The third uh, trimester is uh, week, to, week to go. One week. So, but is it a... Do they birth one at a time, or are they... They get a litter. Okay, so it's like a, a dog or... Yeah, and it goes exponentially, so then each one of those has a gestation. And as soon as they've given birth, they're back on it. Uh, <laughs> no menopause? <laughs> no, evidently not. Just the whales, or the dolphins, rather. Uh, yeah, so that's how their numbers can be so big. In 1993, there was a mouse outbreak that cost $100 million. Um, so to solve this, uh, the CSIRO researchers are warning farmers in Adelaide Plains in northwest Victoria. They've also developed an app what do you think it's called? Ooh. Mouse tracker? Mouse trap. There's got to be a pun in there. It's the pragmatically named mouse alert. Oh. Oh. So no pun. Farmers oh. uh, check in live to see the mouse sitch in their field. They can scroll through, check the notifications, Surely, any new mouse how does that? How does that work? They are Neighbouring farmers all have to okay. get the app, and they update their right. mouse counts. What exactly. exactly happens once you flag that a mouse is there? Do the authorities come running? 
Uh, you'll be better prepared to know what to do when sowing your seed, storing the seed, and uh, yeah, just being prepared, I suppose. Bring in a Jack Russell. Jack Russells? Yeah, they're, I think they're bred for mousing. Really? Yeah, we had a Jack oh. Russell, and it killed a whole bunch of mice one time when it was festing <laughs> our neighbor's backyard. Success. I missed the day, but apparently it was horrific. <laughs> <laughs> Now that's the part of the show where we read out listener questions, but it's the first show, the pilot. No one's listening at this stage. I've got a question. What's your question? <laughs> <laughs> What's the collective noun for mice? Oh, why did you spring this on us? We've <laughs> we got plenty of questions. Maybe the listeners could send us answers to some of the questions we've posed. I agree. We should do that. Tell us what the collective uh, noun for mice or any other interesting animals if, in the future, you'd like to ask us any questions for us to answer next episode in two weeks' time, email us on socialmedia at csiro.au, socialmedia at csiro.au, and, uh, yeah, we'll answer them on next fortnight's show. In the meantime, we're going to go have a drink and party down. The pilot's yeah. done. Thank you for Ooh. listening, and we'll see you next time. See you, guys. Bye-bye. Great fortnight.